Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It's our first ever book club. Where's the wine? It's Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. The book is Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall, and Afterlife of Socialism by one Joshua Moravchik. I have a couple of complaints about the book. Number one, it's very long. It's not 80 uh, pages like I prefer. But it was sure as hell interesting, and to discuss the uh, the book, here I am, Joe Getty. That's Jack Armstrong over there. Uh, Craig, the healthcare guru slash the uh, healthcare gangsta, Craig Gottwalls joins us. Um, also, uh, Tim, the lawyer, Tim Sandifer of the Goldwater Institute, constitutional scholar, author, etc. Gentlemen, thank did you I, for being here. Did I get the wrong book? <laughs> uh, my, mine is titled The Rise and Fall of Socialism, and it's the hardcover here's, copy. Here's the interesting thing about that. This is what's interesting about that. So he wrote that book, the original book, in 2002, thinking he was writing about an historical event that had ended, like the Battle of Hastings. I like mean, it's disco. over. Nothing new will be said about this. Then Bernie came along, and Venezuela, and AOC, and he said... Apparently, the story's not over. How very Francis Fukuyama of him. Exactly. So he put out another book with the epilogue in it saying, I guess socialism ba- is back. Well, or at of, least- course, of course, socialism is the perennial disease. Every And that was one of my complaints about the book is he doesn't start with Plato. He doesn't start with the ancient Greeks. He ta- he starts with the French Revolution. And, 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 I can, and there's good reason for that, to keep it short for, for Joe. But and and other simpletons. <laughs> but I mean to leave that to leave out the the Republic and leave out Aristotle's refutation of Plato, where where Aristotle actually makes fun of Plato. It's one of the few parts in Aristotle where he makes a joke. 
he ridicules Plato by saying that every now and then somebody comes along and says, well, if everybody just owned everything in common, everybody would just be everybody else's friend, which is surprisingly sarcastic for Aristotle, who normally <laughs> reads like stereo instructions. Yeah. And <laughs> stereo instructions. And to totally not talk <laughs> about any of that stuff in the book is kind of surprising, was kind of surprising to me. But well, here's what I wonder about this conversation. Like, if you do a book club and you're talking about, I don't know, the latest fiction novel, that uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo or whatever, you're, prob- you're probably just going to talk about that book. And there's going to be club. wine. But with this book club, we could just talk about socialism for an hour. Right. It doesn't have to be the book. So I don't know whether we're talking about the book and the, well, this particular study of socialism yeah, for I, 415 I, pages. I would like to suggest book review. I'm really not comfortable with club because it does, <laughs> it does sort it of does. connote the wine and the cheese and the middle-aged Well, women you're the one and, that brought the donuts. <laughs> I'm married to one of them. What's the matter with that? Well, now you're that's sexist. for them. This is for us. Lenin was a piece of shit. Let me throw that in there real <laughs> yeah. quick. Whoa, just because he can, can curse on this thing. Sons right. of bitches. Yeah, the, here's the thing that always sticks out to me about anything with socialism. I wish I remembered how old I was, but I was. I remember I was a pretty little kid when I asked my dad, not pretty as an adorable or cute. <laughs> well, though you were I've a seen very pictures, attractive little quite boy. Quite young child. He was blonde, adorable with hair. Blonde curls. When I said to my dad, for some reason I'm picturing living in Illinois, which means I would have been six. Um, when I said to dad, my dad, why don't they just take everything and divide it equally? And he said, well, if you did that, nobody would try very hard because you get the same amount whether you try hard or not. And even at whatever age I was, I thought, oh, okay. And never thought about it again. Never, ever in my life have I even touched upon thinking that would work ever again. That explanation sufficed for the right. rest of my life. Of course that's the way it works. Yeah. Much so like how the, does it keep being reborn among intellectuals? Much like the uh, most complicated shape in the shape-o-ball, the, uh, the time-honored child's toy, his explanations so perfectly fit your question that you are satisfied by it, as, as you should have been. I think it's revealing that we use socialism as a form of punishment a lot of the time. If a child brings gum to class, what does the teacher say? Did you bring enough for everybody? Right. right. That's if not, if not I'm going to take that. your gum away. Well, that's socialism right there. It's used yeah. as a form of punishment because we know that we know the consequences of taking stuff from people and and forcing them to live for the sake of others, which is really the the essential evil of socialism. Aside from all of the it doesn't work stuff that the book gets into is the essential moral evil of socialism, which is the idea that you live for the sake of other people. So, you know, we're somewhat deliberately not structuring this discussion in advance. Um, although, you know, you have four guys here who've read the book and enjoyed it and have a lot of different ideas on the topic and, and the rest of it. Just a quick note on the structure of the book itself. It goes through in, in roughly chronological order. Various people and regimes um, and movements that have been, you know, major moments in in the rise, fall, and afterlife of socialism, uh, which I found actually pretty entertaining. Yeah, and it's a lot of stuff that you'd kind of vaguely heard of out of the corner of your ear once but didn't know much about, like the Paris Commune. I thought that was very interesting. And the part at the end about the uh, Israeli uh, kibbutz system was by far the best part of the book. I thought that was really fascinating. And it contains uh, Craig Gottwald's very favorite quote from the book, I think. Craig, do you have that that handy? It does. Let me have that quote. And, and listen, I hate to go to this so quickly because it is the absolute classic Armstrong and Getty criticism of, of socialism, um, probably because it's so friggin' obvious. Um, 
But uh, so, uh, you know, we can talk about how we want to approach the book. Do we want to go in order? Do we want to just pick our favorite parts? Uh, Lenin was a piece of shit. So, so the, uh, <laughs> a point worth repeating. It, the, the quote in the book is very short. I added to it, but I, 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 for context for the listeners, yeah. the kibbutz, and so even the very best of socialist communities, proved to be a paradise for slackers and a purgatory for producers. So for those who haven't read the book, the book starts off um, with the French Revolution. And, and, and it, it says the French Revolution is kind of the roots of socialism as we know it today in the world, although Tim, Tim has issue with that as we start off. And then the book ends with the kibbutz. And the kibbutz... Um, these were these were outposts uh, of of the Israeli state going into the Palestine area where people lived in a communal fashion in kind of kind of a, in a warlike setting, you know, because they were they were invading a, a an enemy territory. And the book makes the point that probably of all the various forms of socialism we looked at from you know 1800 through today, the kibbutz was the most successful. But what's interesting, and I just want to see if you guys picked up on this, is for it, a while it was it, it was it was that's a good point too. It it certainly started to crumble, as the quote says. But it talks about how socialism needs to succeed; it needs to overcome the family. And it was both the French Revolution and the kibbutz that kind of showed ultimately family broke down socialism. In the kibbutz, it was that it was that you ultimately wanted to live with your kids and not send them off to live in a communal home to be educated. God, and can when you, you imagine yes. that as a parent sending your kids off to just to, to be, well, you know, to, you don't parent them. Right. I mean, that's right. just, that's every instinct I've gotten in my life every day since I had children right. is to parent my children. I've had, well, as I've told you, I had college professors that advocated that point of view in, in school, and I was so utterly blown away by that. I was convinced that they were mentally ill. Turns out I was correct. Uh, it's funny you should bring that up, though. I just started to read a piece, and I uh, barely cracked the, the cover, about um, how the identity politics panic, uh, they think, may be a substitute for uh, family dynamics, family self-identification. I'm part of this family. This is my mother, my father, my sisters, my brothers, my cousins, blah, blah, blah. That's broken down so much, people are desperate for some sort of identification. But anyway, Well, that makes that, perfect sense, because... Mark's theory was that um, nationalism and family and all that stuff would subside once we got people to understand it's all about a class struggle. And ultimately, the Bolshevik Revolution and Lenin proved that that just wasn't going to happen. You needed to have something else. And then and then you get to the perversion of Hitler and, and Mussolini, who say, yeah, nationalism's where it's at. But that's where we're at today, where I think I think most of these True Marxists would say, yeah, the class struggle has failed, so we need to do it based upon intersectionalism and tribal identity politics right. to keep it going. This thing about the family, though, I think that was a, one of the attractive things about socialism a century ago and possibly still was precisely the fact that it seemed to a lot of people to be not necessarily a breaking, but a liberation from the family, which especially in the 19th century consisted a lot of unchosen obligations that you would really rather not have, or even more extreme positions like the um, the Oneida community, for example, under John Humphrey Noyes in the 19th century, which was a free love kind of, you know, it was a sex cult, basically. And it was an example of an early communist uh, uh, effort in the United States. Hun Ho Noyes went on to write a book on the history of American communisms in which he went through all the different socialist communities that have been founded in the United States. And I would, I, I'm not so sure that it's true that the kibbutz is the most successful form of socialism in the United States anyway. It would certainly be rivaled with the Shaker communities. You know, the Shaker communities in the 19th century, there are still Shakers alive to this day. 
Now, they certainly were anti-family. They were anti-individualist all down the line. I mean, the sh in the Shaker community, how you folded your hands was literally dictated to you by the, the elders in charge of the Shaker community. Mm -hmm. It was the right hand, uh, the right hand is over the left hand. Hey, I mean, every single little bit. A quick question on that topic. Um, you know, everybody who listens to the show knows I've quoted Sebastian Younger's tribe many times, but he makes the point that in your socialist tribal societies, those who did not contribute were either killed or shoved out to starve to death. Um, did the Shakers have uh, share that element? They or? would expel you. They were also they were um, so in theory they not only held no private property and had no family structures, but they were rigidly celibate. So these it, they're Christian of some sort. That's right, and they depended entirely on converts to bring in new members to the to the community because they were uh, rigidly segregated by sex. And there was, I'm out. They're celibate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it turns out. <laughs> It turns out. Oh, I'm sorry, you hadn't mentioned that in the pamphlet. Thanks. <laughs> I'm, uh, hey, thanks for the buttermilk. Really, really nice, really good and fresh. But isn't isn't there is there some leader that gets to have sex with everybody? You know, that seems yeah. to it does be often fairly turn common. Out that way. Okay. That's right. No, but it turns out that archaeology <laughs> at old Shaker sites has turned out uh, turned up a whole bunch of items that Shakers weren't supposed to have in hidden in hidden junkyards on the Shaker communes because of course they broke the rules and they sneaked little private property items in to their communities and they were breaking the rules all the time so it didn't even work in the shaker community what you instead find is a lot of the time and this happened in the kibbutz also and he Maravsha gets into this in the book but it, it happened to oneida it happened in amana we know those names today because those communities turned into factories that produced money by selling products. Which is very socialist. They became right. capitalists, right. exactly. Yeah. Which, you know, is kind of funny because this is Aldous Huxley's critique of society in Brave New World. He he's essentially complaining in Brave New World that capitalism absorbs its own critique, which is the point that was made in, in the, uh, mm. uh, the brilliant uh, episode of Black Mirror. Uh, um, what is it? A Million Credits, I think it's called. Where, you know, you try to fight the system and then the system says, oh, isn't that cute? And makes your fight against the system into part of the system itself, which is very frustrating to revolutionaries. Right. <laughs> but that's one of the great things about capitalism is it, it kind of steps into the blow. It kind of cushions the blow from critics when it's allowed to. Well, that gets into Bernstein's critique of Marx and Engels, right? Because Bernstein was, was looking at what was happening as we moved into the 19th century. Us, and he was give saying- Give us five seconds on who Bernstein is. Bernstein was the number one protege of Engels, who in Engels, for those who haven't read the book, was 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 basically the brighter of the two between Marx and Engels and did most of the work. It should be called Engelism, It should be called Engelism. I wasn't right? aware of that until I read this book. And- um, they had a split. Uh, well, it, Bernstein later on in, in the years, as we, as we approached 1900, noticed that, hey, wait a minute, labor unions and labor laws and all these things that capitalism is co-opting co in, in sort of Tim's vernacular is making the workers' standards so much better that maybe we don't need a revolt. Maybe we don't need this massive upheaval. Right. Um, and then it was a few years after that. Uh, Lenin that absolutely hated that approach and he became the, the polar opposite of maintaining that, you know, kind of the Antifa model. We need a big revolt. Yeah, right. Bernstein was more or less along the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders track. Exactly. What's the most he interesting... so much more realist than Marx. But what's the most interesting thing about Bernstein that stands out from almost everybody else in the whole book? He grew up in poverty grew unlike up in poverty. all of the others. Yes. He and his family <laughs> had to work for a living. Almost yes. everybody else was either rich or sucking off of somebody else. The Just the description of the relationship between 
between Engels and Marx, how Engels supported Marx. Marx never worked, really earned any money his entire life. Can we stipulate that Marx was a piece of shit as well? Yeah, yeah we can. Oh, Marx we is... can absolutely <laughs> stipulate that. And Engels just kept sending him money. Yeah. And Marx would spend to meet the allowance he was getting and beyond and then say, I need more money. He actually had maids taking care of his house. Right, while he was broke and making while no money. While he was breaking, getting money from Engels. precursor and, to the U.S. Congress. And he's talking for the working class <laughs> yeah. to take over the world. This is amazing. So the, for those, I don't want to be quite too hip for the room, so I'll, I'll keep dumbing it down. Um, Marx believed that, and, and this was the legitimacy of, of Marx, that he was a scientist, a scientist scientifically studying the inevitable uh, progress of mankind. And he said that capitalism would inevitably result in the workers rising up and, and throwing off the, the chains, blah, 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 and based on class, et cetera, et cetera. And what Bernstein, who is like the only guy in the book with the capacity for any self-doubt, well, that overstates it because there are a few. He was one of the few guys who said, you know, I might be wrong, but I think, um, as opposed to, you know, thundering like God on high. Um, but what kept happening is the workers said, no, why don't we just improve our lot by doing this, that, and the other? And then you move into the, the 20th century and the various great communist thinkers, um, and this is what really unifies all of them to me, engaged in this mind-boggling egotism that, yeah. no, 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 you stupid workers, oh, yeah. don't you tell me you're happy, don't you tell me you're getting yeah. more wealthy by the week, don't you tell me that life is good, it's not good enough, and by God, if I have to kill every man, Jackia, I'm going to lead you to salvation. Now I'm going to go back to my job of thinking and not making any money with servants while somebody right. else pays for it. Yeah. yeah. No, what's the old joke about how the, 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 the socialist has to exterminate the people and replace them with a new one? In order to serve the system, you know, because the the people are never good enough for socialism. Right. And and this is unfortunately this is the the comment you often hear from conservatives. They always say, they very often you hear them say, well, socialism sounds like a great theory. It's just it it's too good for human beings. Human beings just aren't good enough for socialism, which is absurd. That's like saying <laughs> that sawdust is the ideal diet for human beings. It's just that we're incapable of digesting it. I mean, if if the system <laughs> if the system is contrary to human nature, then it's not that human nature has to change. Which, as Moravchik rightly says is really the essential element of socialism is to try and change human nature to suit the theory it's crazy messy the other way around is now one problem that there is there's a big problem that i have with moravchek is that although it's a very interesting and entertaining and enlightening history of socialism he never really gets into the theoretical problems the reason why socialism cannot actually work and there are there are three of those and they were the they were uncovered by economists in the 20th century. And unfortunately, if you look in the index, he doesn't mention any of these people. And that is Friedrich Hayek's uh, knowledge problem, Ludwig von Mises's uh, uh, calculation problem, and the the individualism problem, which I will attribute to Ayn Rand, although there are many other intellectuals who talk about this also. The calculation problem is that if the government owns all of the resources, there's no way to make economic decisions at all. How do you make economic decisions? You make them by comparing what it's going to cost with what the benefits are. But if the government owns absolutely everything, it's actually literally impossible to make that calculation. So you can't even come up with something like prices. That's what prices do. But as Mises pointed out, it's impossible to come up with prices in a truly communist economy. The knowledge problem that Hayek pointed out is that nobody can possibly have the information necessary to plan out an economy. There's just too much information, too many details 
to actually have a plan for the entire economy. You can't even plan out your, your own day, let alone actually plan out an economy. And this, the problem with, of individualism is that people not only think about their lives in terms of their own costs and benefits, but that it's right for them to do so. And socialism demands instead that they live for the sake of others and that they make their decisions based on the collective good, which aside from being a meaningless phrase, means sacrificing who they are and what they dream and, and what they have a right to dream for the benefit of some abstraction. And there's, that's why there is no argument in favor of socialism that is not equally an argument in favor of cannibalism and human sacrifice. Because socialism is human sacrifice, and it's, and it's immoral as well as being unworkable. And I, I'm, what I, my big beef against a book is he doesn't talk about that. Well, well, he hits it pretty hard in he hits at least two thirds of it pretty hard in the just when he goes through what happened to the USSR and communism. But you're right. He doesn't really he doesn't really explain what was leading to that. He just shows what happened because it's a history book. He's not yeah. it's not a theory book. And I don't blame him for that. But if you're looking for a book that's going to really show you a, a single volume, this about is pi- right. Tim's pick for our next book, guys. Drum roll, please. Oh, I wasn't going to say it. I was going to say not this one. But uh, there are, are an awful lot. No, I've, I've got my idea for a book that's going to lift Jack's spirits. Uh, when the time when the time comes, I'm still advocating for strange but true hockey stories. My favorite, <laughs> my favorite book is an eight year old boy. I was happy to see. Well, hold on, Tim never got to his book. Oh, no, no, mention... I don't have a suggestion oh. right oh, now. I thought you were saying. Oh, I'll save that for the end of the show. Okay. I was happy to realize because I've I've always uh, uh, been a little confused of what socialism is. And, you know, you look it up in the dictionary and. The definition will be whatever it isn't usually as is some sort of state controlled this or that. But it, it it's clear in the book, as he points out, it, it's meant different people, different things to different people throughout history. It still does. When when somebody calls Bernie a socialist, it might m- mean something different than when Bernie Sanders himself calls himself a socialist. Sure. And so the, the definition yeah. in that and communism being interchanged and stuff throughout history. It's a, at what period and who are we talking about? Yeah, it does feel nowadays I mean, that to be a socialist means you think the, the Social Security Act is a good idea or something. Yeah, you know what? It was exactly. Funny. The other aspect of that, because uh, there were multiple, multiple interpretations of what it is and what it ought to be, and the various arguments, the bitter, bitter arguments that these people would have, and they'd publish their tracts in their newspapers and their the book-length blasts at each other. It's and like the rest a Monty Python scene. It's like the, the People's Friend of Judea scene. Right, exactly. And it reminds me very much of various geeks arguing about the Avengers and stuff like that. Just these, <laughs> right. these people are so obsessed with their own passions. They're just nitpicking. I mean, they're picking the nits off of larger nits. Okay, now just... I'll step back and I will defend Marx here. And I... Uh, and that is, Oof. I think a lot of what the aforementioned piece I think of a shit. theories are the kind of person he was. Oh no, God. his theories, yeah. <laughs> what a piece of shit. <laughs> so, so his theories, and that is this: for first of all, the workers have, in fact, seized the means of production in the United States. We all own 401ks or 403bs that consist of mutual funds, which consist of stock, which means that, and, I, and we are the workers, which means the workers do indeed own the means of production well in the United played. States. Yes. The second one is that his criticisms of capitalism, a lot of them are well-founded, not just his criticisms of the economic system of his time, which he wrongly thought was capitalism, 
but also his critique of the family. I, we were talking about the family earlier. You know, there's a part in the in the Communist Manifesto where he says, you know, we get accused, we communists, we get accused of favoring free love. But what is capitalist marriage if it's not free love? Serial monogamy. These wealthy these wealthy celebrities going around and sleeping with, sleeping around with whoever they want to. How is that any better than free love? Well, he's got a point in 2019. And as far as his criticisms of what he thought capitalism was, a lot of the time he's talking about stuff like overseas colonialism. And he calls that capitalism, which I would disagree with. But when he says things like, we're talking about a system where politically powerful, wealthy people use the government to, to get their way at the expense of the poor, right. he's absolutely right about that. Right, which is what we frequently point out as crony capitalism. And it it's was a, rife in the 19th century when he was writing about that. That's oh, what they did. Absolutely. Um, do, you, do you, in your own mind, differentiate between the term capitalism and the free market? No. Or is that slicing it too I, thin? I, de- I define capitalism as a system where all property is privately owned right. and all decisions about economic transactions are made by individuals. Oh, and then one more quick note, and then, Craig, I know you want to throw something in, but the, the stuff about family, it also strikes me. It's funny. Judy and I were flipping channels last night. We came across, was it the favorite? Uh, got a lot of attention. A couple of gals vying for the uh, favor of the queen, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, oh, the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah the movie. Yeah. The favorite. It was a pretty good movie. Yeah, uh, yeah it was, it's quite enjoyable, but... Um, the one gal was constantly having to apologize and or explain that she was, you know, quite educated and, and bright and she wasn't just a scullery maid, but scullery maid, but her family had fallen on hard times, blah, blah, blah. And so it was a reminder of how incredibly limiting family could be yep. in Marx's time, too. You were just never going to rise above your station. And the so. class system left right. over from feudalism that was still prevalent in, Britain, in in Europe at the time and in some ways still is. Mm-hmm. And when your only alternative to that is some sort of Edmund Burke crap. I mean, is it any surprise that people embrace socialism? When, when you look around you and you see all this injustice and you look for somebody to champion your cause and you have Edmund Burke standing there saying, oh no, the, the feudalist structure of, uh, of the past is a wonderful thing precisely because it has no justification for it, precisely because it's pure habit and has no theoretical rationale. And, 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 and I'm against economics because it, remember Burke's exact words, he says, uh, it would rudely tear off the decent drapery of life furnished from uh, the moral imagination to cover the defects of our naked, shivering nature. Oh like, God. what kind of crap is that? And that's, that's the... A nice al- phrase. That's the alternative you have? What he means by that is we should not ask what government is for. We shouldn't indulge in re- in abstract analyses of questions about justice because then that would disrupt the state. Well, if that's the alternative, then you're damn right I'm going to disrupt the state. I, I, I'm pretty sure that if I lived... 150 years ago, I would have been a socialist myself, precisely because that was the alternative they had. Right. Well said. Wow. You wouldn't have you wouldn't have uh, taken the approach that Frederick Douglass said and said, man will only work for two reasons. I would hope so. And and one reason is to avoid punishment. And the other reason is to gain riches. And I've seen the avoidance of punishment method. And that's the worst possible method. For those who are unfamiliar with it, Douglass's first biographer um, wrote uh, this this marvelous passage where he describes Douglass's views. And Douglass, he says, was of the view that people that he was against socialism because he said people will work either for profit or to escape punishment. And if you eliminate profit, as socialism does, then you will have to have a system of punishment so that, he says, socialism will be indistinguishable from Negro servitude. Yeah, and I, and I, I just think right. it's that simple. I yeah. think it's really that no simple. Question. There's only, that's it, two motivating factors. Well, mm-hmm. right, getting back to my childlike uh, view and understanding of socialism that has never left me, I don't understand on the very basic level, like some of that theory you put out there is interesting and, 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 and true and all that sort of stuff, but at the very basic level with a small group of people in some of these different experiments they did, 
there were slackers that just didn't try very hard, and then the other people said, "Screw this." Yeah. How how, right. did, how does it how does socialism ever make it even past that level? To get any credibility. Because right. that's so that obviously a, true. A fourth grader that's compelled right. to do a team project knows I this. think the answer, I believe that the answer to that is because of the continuing prevalence of the idea that morality consists of self-sacrifice. It's be- because we teach the, the non-slackers that the moral and just thing to do is to devote their lives to other people. And, and so they think it's a good thing to have their, the fruits of their labor seized and given to somebody else and to support a political system that does that. And the only way that we will ever truly triumph over socialism is to eliminate the morality of self-sacrifice. Well, that's very Ayn Randian. Well, I'm an objectivist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, you know, I, the point, just standing up for people who might take a, a slightly less um, committed view to that idea, it's like everything else in life, for goodness sakes. You've, you've got to recognize the need for balance and and... And not ask people to live in a way that has never really happened. That's and back to the the incredible egotism of so many of the characters in the book. They're they felt like they were gods as they pitched this you know theory of of uh, of equality and in forced equality. And there's a sense in which they're right. It, get, follow me here. So my favorite part of the book is when he's talking about the the kibbutz. And he talks about what really was the destruction of the kibbutz. And we mentioned Ayn Rand earlier. The president of the Ayn Rand Institute today is a guy who grew up in one of these kibbutzes. And and he tells exactly the same story. I don't know if he read the book or not. I I just heard him speak a few weeks ago, and he's telling the story. What happened was after World War II, a lot of these soldiers came back. I mean, after after Israel was was built. I mean, it was after the, I'm sorry, it was after the uh, Arab-Israeli War. A lot of these soldiers came back to the kibbutz with Items, toasters, you know, toasters, clothing, yeah, yeah. or radios. In in in, uh, in this one fellow's case, it was a radio, and you know, it's for his wife or it's for his kid. And now you have the apple in the Garden of Eden, right? <laughs> now yeah. you all of a sudden you have the disruption in this placid, unchanging, permanent society that you've built. Where, well, gosh, I want a toaster. And now what do we do? Well, we'll share the toaster. Well, that doesn't make anybody happy. You, or you, you take the kid's radio away from him because he can't share it with others. How cruel is that, right? And, and that it becomes the crack in the edifice of this frozen, permanent, brilliantly sculpted, unchanging sculpture that is socialist idealism. Instead of the dynamic, living, changing world of a free market... And I, I loved that part of the book. That yeah. is because that's the crack. And then eventually everybody else has to have a toaster. And then you have to build toasters. You have to buy toasters. Then people, kids are leaving in order to go buy a better toaster, right. and, which is so beautiful. It's like the flower poking up between the, the cracks of the sidewalk. Yeah. So. It, it, and, and people people listening that may not have read it, the, the kibitz was so purely communistic in their little organizations that the women shared state-issued clothing. I mean, they had nothing of their own. They had these identical little huts that they lived in at the beginning, and it, and it worked moderately well until soldiers started bringing back trinkets, and, and women see that they could have their own blouse that they could launder, et cetera. And that just it, and then once, once it got to the point of the, they talk about the third generation problem, where the parents were pretty good at it, the, the, the first generation, the kids were, they, they lived with it. But then when you got to the grandkids that started to rebel against their against their grandparents and they wanted to have their own toaster and they yeah. wanted to go do their own thing and they wanted to live with their family. And then once once they relented and said, OK, kids can now live with the family. Well, now 
Now you needed to build larger homes, and you basically bankrupted these things and, and caused debt. And, you know, Rousseau talks about this in, in his books. Rousseau talks about this in almost literally these, these, these Adam and Eve terms. He says if he could go back and, and in time, he would stop the first person who used the word mine because the, the idea of property was <laughs> the destruction of this idyllic primitive society that he envisions. And now when I look at it, I think what a beautiful experience to own your first Thing, to have this, to have that something that you can say belongs to me and to nobody else. What a special moment that is. And to mention Douglas again, there's that marvelous passage in his memoirs where he talks about earning his first dollar as a free man. And he yeah, says he wow. held this money in his hand and he realized that his hands were his own and could make more of the precious coin. I mean, that's what a beautiful moment. And a socialist looks at that. And thinks it's evil and thinks right. it's bad. It's incredible, and it's not just the property. Like Jack, you, like you were saying, it's it's it was, wasn't just state issued clothing. It's the kids couldn't even sleep with their parents. Right? They they were required to sleep yeah. in these collective children's huts so that they would grow up without the idea of private property. Literally stunting their moral growth as a human experiment in order to create monsters. That's what this that was. And it still didn't work. It's it's st still it didn't work. It still didn't Thank work. You, God. you could I mean and this when Gorbachev visited the kibbutz in the 1980s, he actually said, "This is what we've been missing in the USSR. This is what we intended." This is the most pure example. Hmm. And he fortunately, so how's it going? <laughs> as the great political philosopher uh, uh, said, life uh, finds a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you uh, you mentioned the, what's your favorite part of the book? The my, maybe my favorite part of the book, not the most learned part of the book. And I don't remember which iteration of socialism and whose idea this was, but some of the great thinkers had the theory that not only were we going to perfect men on Earth, we we're going to perf perfect wildlife. <gasps> oh right, yeah. Once human beings. <laughs> when you said that, I was trying to remember where that was. That French Revolution stuff, or was that it later? Was, uh, yes. That was eighteen hundred sometime. But it was. <laughs> It was the theory that once people start behaving properly, then animals will observe that and they will start behaving properly. They'll and like, all become herb herbivores, yeah, no matter and, what they are. And exactly. lions will stop eating antelopes and, oh, and it will oh, have yeah. perfection. I mean, that, yeah, that is some that. really crazy stuff. And You're getting into crazy food. Oh, and it's not the last time that happened. I was just checking to double check that he doesn't mention Trofim Lysenko. Lysenko was this Soviet geneticist who said that according to true communist doctrine, you could transform winter wheat into summer wheat by exposing it to heat. Because the idea of genetics was no, a that capitalist. doesn't come up in the book. <laughs> oh no, the, the idea of genetics was a capitalist individualistic notion, and and this theoretically kind of makes a sense because communism says there is no real nature. There's just a human construct. Everything is a social construct, right? So the it, dialectical materialism then says, well, then then there's no reason why you couldn't transform a, an entity from one nature to another <laughs> by changing its environmental surroundings, right? That's what we're doing with humans with communism. Are you Giving it a good stern talking so to. So we can cha genetically <laughs> transform wheat right. by just exposing it to heat or cold. And Stalin loved this and made Lysenko the head of his of, of his uh, uh, scientific department. Lysenko went and had all of his scientific opponents executed. And sure enough, the Soviet Union suffered when the crops failed, when sure enough, summer wheat won't grow in, in the winter. And it, you can't change that no matter how hard you try. But socialism says that you can use the will to overcome natural laws. Who's with me? This is akin to Gwyneth, <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow uh, yeah. talking sternly to water in her Goop right. publication. Yeah. There's right? no, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not a coincidence that socialists tend to be into crazy pseudosciences.
Uh, oh, let's, I, I'm looking through my notes. I'm trying to find that part about the beasts uh, all getting yeah, along. Yeah, I've got it highlighted. But, but um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember where that uh, was. Uh, well, so just hilarious. Funny. It wasn't Rousseau because Rousseau says that in in the discourse on inequality, he says that in, in primitive society before the introduction of reason, that that primitive man was never attacked by wild animals. There you <laughs> go. Fantastic. Oh, but I came across my other note that I, I wanted to remember, and I've always thought this was, well, I've known this was true in the modern world. Nobody's ever actually read these these long Marx books. Das Kapital, right? Nobody's <laughs> ever actually read them. And even at the time they knew that. I didn't yeah. realize that. They yeah. still they distilled it down to like a 45-page summary so people could have some idea what they're talking about. It was way more important to have it on your bookshelf or your coffee table because nobody could actually read and understand like the, it. Like the Bible. Didn't so they get Bernstein a, to summarize Das like, Capital like, like in Hillary's that autobiography. It was really more of a theory and a gesture. It was a virtue signaling for socialism right. than to actually read the book, which is hilarious. You know, uh, on that topic, I didn't find the animal part, but this is almost as good. Um, this is one of your French uh, socialists, one of your leading thinkers of the time. Babo. Uh, uh, Manifesto of the Equals. Um... That uh, essentially, if, okay, if there is a single man on earth who is richer and more powerful than his fellows, then the equilibrium is broken. Crime and misfortune are on earth. Therefore, it was imperative to, quote, remove from every individual the hope of ever becoming richer or more powerful or more distinguished by his intelligence. Okay, number one, that sounds a hell of a lot to me like slavery and oppression. But why would you do this? Well, this would lead to, and I quote, the disappearance of boundary marks, hedges, walls, door locks, disputes, <laughs> trials, thefts, murders, all crimes, courts, prisons, gallows, penalties. Also, the removal of envy, jealousy, insatiability, pride, deception, duplicity, and in short, all, all vices. vices. Yes, right. I have right. that. You're going to remove envy and jealousy from human nature. You're going to get rid of all vices, Jack. Which is really all, which, <laughs> what the, all that that really says is if you transform human beings into cattle, they will be cattle or <laughs> angels, right? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And there's one sure way to transform them into angels, and socialists have been really good at that. You kill them, and then they're angels, right? Well, so here's oh, here's one thing that keeps. Str- I, I think about this all the time, and maybe to discuss this, we would have to have a book club meeting about Thomas Sowell's A Conflict of Visions. Because how do some people immediately react to the stuff we're laughing about? As it's hilarious, it's so wrong. And how do other people think? Yeah, that makes sense to me. How do, how do you how do you get there? I think there's two answers to that. I think there's the the primitive answer, which is that people are grow up on fairy tales, and that's the farthest they go. And so then they just think sharing is a good thing, so socialism is a good thing. They, that's they don't think about it further. Yeah, but the not other old one, timey fairy tales when kids actually get cooked and eaten by witches, <laughs> which is yeah. how it always ends with right. socialism. Oh, now that's a fairy tale. <laughs> but the second one is. As the prevalence of a, of a philosophical view that says that justice is about distribution. And the person really responsible for this in the United States is John Rawls. And if you look throughout any college campus, what, what philosophy departments are teaching about justice is John Rawls. And that's the idea that justice consists of dividing things up and giving those things to people. And the reason we have a society is to divide up and decide who gets what rights to what. And we do so in order to accomplish social goods. That is as opposed to the classical liberal conception of justice that you find in in the Declaration of Independence and and the U.S. Constitution, which says justice means that if you make it, you keep it. If you buy it, you keep it. As long as you don't steal it from somebody, then it's yours. End of story. And those are the competing visions. And unfortunately for, well, Rawls wrote his book in the 60s, I think, ever since then, colleges have been dominated by this idea that justice means distribution, which it doesn't. 
Uh, I found the passage we were talking about. Let me hit you with this, then we can move on. But um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the human race would change, and not only it, there will be no cruelty in man's nature, not even toward other creatures. And as a result, the animal creation will also become different in character. More species would be domesticated, and those that could not be tamed would be destroyed. Oh, that's enlightened. <laughs> so that a terrestrial paradise be formed in which harmony will pervade all that will exist upon Earth, including the domestication of lions and whales that would free human beings from uh, from work. And So either lions would start wearing pants and stop <laughs> eating antelope, or right. we would kill them off. Right, exactly. Yeah. In the name of harmony, <laughs> which gets back to uh, to the egotism. Hey, listen, just real quickly, um, not probably not real quickly, uh, <laughs> I, I, I like to learn, so I'm fine with when I'm wrong about things, but I like it better when I'm right. And uh, <laughs> That's Joe. They're going to eliminate See, that with you socialism. Are a capitalist. Exactly. They're going to eliminate that emotion. <laughs> listen, I'm not going to lie. I, I, uh, I'm a little bit, uh, little bit fragile. Uh, but I've been saying for a very long time, as people get in these soul-numbing arguments about... Um, that Hitler was actually a socialist, and and the rest oh, of it, and then yeah. then communism, and blah blah blah. But just like your your very very basics of political theory, which just are are thought provoking but practically useless. Functional difference, please, between Lenin and Hitler. Anybody want to take that one? Oh. How about you go first, and I'll come after you. I mean, Lenin talked about race. Hitler talked realized. I, I'm sorry. Lenin talked about class. And Hitler said, nobody's dancing to the class beat. Let's make it about nation. Well, Mussolini actually, you know, kind of led Hitler into that thinking. Yeah, but yeah I was going to say. Functionally, though? Well, functionally, man, I, the, the USSR and fascist Italy, anyway, were so similar that I think it's a distinction without a difference, really. Because Lenin, and, and in my opinion, I, I kind of want to get all your views. I think Lenin's the worst character in the book. I mean, he is just an evil. I, I envision the Joker sitting up atop a pile of cash, saying, "I just want to watch it." All you know, burn. the belief has yeah. was for decades that Lenin was actually a fairly benevolent human being who wanted socialism. Stalin was the yeah. evil person, and right. the the the, the and more this recent book uncovers that the more recent biographers who've had a chance to dig into the Soviet Union's you know papers and stuff like that, Lenin was a more evil sob than Stalin. Was Lenin was the or worst? Certainly, as I mean, bad. Lenin was just he he loved violence genocidal. Or loved it. Yeah. So when you say the difference between would you say Lenin and, uh, and Hitler? Hitler. Yeah. Well, uh, Lenin was making it up as he went along, right? So he's he's coming. He he believes Marx and Engels' philosophy that you need a revolution. Bernstein comes along and says, "No, no, 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 no. We can Bernie Sanders slow roll this." And then Lenin, as kind of a response, a backlash against Bernstein, said, no, 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 we need violence and we need an enemy. But when he saw that Russia was agrarian and it was not an industrialized nation, he had to create the enemy. So he named the Kulaks, the small, the more successful family farms, right. which had an average of half of an employee. Half of these farms didn't even have one employee, but they were the closest thing you had to wealth in old Russia. Mm -hmm. So Lenin, making it up as he went along, said, that's the enemy. That's who we kill. That's who we revolt against. And so he, he just wrote his own deal at that point. But Hitler and Mussolini, observing this, said, nah, 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 nah. You need a you need a something more tribally and 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 instinctive, and that was you hate the other. You you stick right. with your tribe. You you use racism, national socialism, your race, your gender, your kind as the enemy. So, I, is that a real difference? In my opinion, it's not. See, much. I I have a little bit different view. I think that I think 
the roots of fascism are um, in a in a conscious rejection of the intellectualism that the fascists saw as being the, the foundation of communism. So uh, the history of fascism starts with the Romanticist movement that begins with Rousseau, and so it it certainly has it it is certainly socialism, but it's an anti civilization movement. Fascism in it, true fascism is is this idea that. Uh, of tribalism and culture and tradition as opposed to the allegedly artificial civilization and law and constitutions and things like that. Culture arises from the gut. It's a spiritual, mystical, physical quality that can't be explained in rational terms. That's what the fascist says. And the the socialist rejects that because he says, no, we're going to scientifically plan out the economy in order to accomplish the the collective good, blah, blah, blah. We're going to do it through a a bureaucracy and we're going to have all these debates and all this. Fascist says, no, we're not going to have any debates about rational planning. What we're going to have is the Fuhrer is going to articulate the spirit of the folk. And and what he says, that mystical, spiritual, uh, a a rational, anti-rational principle is going to guide the tribe toward the future. So I think it's I think there is a deep difference between the two in that fascism is very reactionary and it's all about the tradition of our people versus the tradition of those people, whereas communism is supposed to be universal to all humans. That leads me to the question I wanted to hit, Joe. I know you're coming in, but my my question was. Don't we think that socialism and communism are ultimately almost always in every case going to lead to fascism because of tribal instincts? Well, that 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 was part of my question about Lenin and Hitler is any uh, pretense toward we're going to have debates and councils and the rest of it in Lenin's case was completely artificial. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a practical politician. Yeah. And so uh, and all of this stuff is is fraud. So it's kind of like, you know angels dancing on a head of a pin kind of debates. Really. Right. Back but, to a political theory class. Yeah. But it, and it is true that communism will turn into fascism because people are going to fall back on their tradition, on their family or racial loyalties. Who's, who's not pulling their load? Yeah. And then and you're going to, so you're going to have the, tribal it up. you're going to have the committee that's in charge of the factory. Well, it, you know, the Bob is friends with Joe and, and they, and, and Richard over there, he's black. So he's totally out. And, you know, that sort those sorts of attitudes are going to affect how they run their committee so eventually these sort of tribalistic or family loyalties are going to pervade the system and that's what we saw in the soviet union they called them the what was it, the nomenclatura and that's what we're seeing now in the college snowflake phenomenon moving toward antifa i mean you're seeing this segregation out on the other where joe always likes to talk about what kind of blood do you got in you is becoming more and more relevant to these people which is The opposite of where they were supposed to have started this whole this perpetual debate is going to be that communism is going to say we're for the whole world. And then the Nazi is going to come along and say, well, yeah, but you can't really be for the entire world. You have to draw a line somewhere. So why don't we draw them along racial or national boundaries? And then they go back and forth and the rest of us are sent off to the extermination camp. What happened to England? This is all so uplifting. (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, the, the, you, you hope to have a little joy, a little success, a little satisfaction in life. But <laughs> if you can avoid third degree burns and puncture wounds, yeah. that's a, that's pretty good, too. Well, so just let's warn people off the insanity. I mean, it's, uh, Jack, I want to get back to Jack's question. Tim gave a very Tim answer. I mean, it was incredibly <laughs> deep. It's either, pra- wanna, it's either praise or an attack. I want to simplify the hell out of this. Jack said, why do people still believe in it? 
And I think Joe and I have a disagreement on this front. Joe said blame and envy because the politics of blame and envy are irresistible to vast amounts of people. And I That's think part of it. I think one thing you need in addition to blame and envy is a third element. And that third element could either be laziness, lack of ability or lack of confidence. Because if, you, if you're just a blame Lack and envy... confidence is a good one. Yeah, it, one of those. Because you need blame plus envy plus I know I can never do it. So that's people who hear you can go as far as you want with your effort and your talents and, and secretly or in your own mind you're thinking, I really don't have any talents. Yeah. I'm going to fail. If that's yes. the way you think, you're going to be pro-socialist. I, yes. I just don't see any way around that. I'm not so sure it's, it's essential, but it certainly is very common that you find socialism is popular among people who have a weakness of self-esteem. No question about it. I've lately, so this is kind of a little bit off topic, but I've, I've lately been obsessing on the writer Zora Neale Hurston. Have any of you read? No. She, her most famous book is, is a novel called Their Eyes Were Watching God. And I, I don't know, I, I think she may be the best writer after Twain. What an amazing writer. And she was a black writer working from about, what, 1920 to she died in 1960. And she rejected socialism and communism, which were very popular among the Harlem Renaissance crowd, people like Langston Hughes. And when you get down to the bottom, it's because she couldn't stand the lack of pride. Mm. She could, and it's it's so it's she expresses it so beautifully in her novels. How people could possibly want other people to set the terms of life for them, mm, and that's right. what wow. socialism really gets to. Is it's this idea of well, I'm going to leave it to Big Brother to plan my life for me or something. How could you stand a life like that? And that's what what has attracted me so much to her writing because I've I've always thought that too. I I, I think my you know you talk about your your dad uh, Jack uh, to saying we should you know sharing everything nipping this in lazy. the bud when you're yeah. six. Yeah. <laughs> in my case, it was being forced into the California public school system, and and having to daily be bossed around and told what I could say and what I could do all the time. And this is for your own good and it's good for the good of the state and blah, 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 blah. How can you, how can you stand that? But there are people who really like being well, told yes. what to do because yeah. it takes the responsibility. Is there it. anything to the fact that almost everybody in this book, Marx, Lenin, so many of the people were, ch yeah, were children of privilege? Yeah, everyone. Oh, yeah, is, yeah, so. How does that factor in? Yeah. Are they worried that they can't be as successful, or do they have some sort of weird guilt over Or the them? idea that you don't deserve what you've earned is just easier to sell somebody who hasn't really earned a lot. I think you see that a lot in, among our celebrity socialists in Hollywood today. Oh, yeah. Or you're afraid of hard work, so you devise the system that props you up and you don't have to work hard. You talk about it's, privilege. It's the liberal guilt thing. I don't, I don't the know what's going on there. The privilege of being a socialist. I mean, it's too incredible. it's too consistent to not be based in something yeah. that they were children of privilege. So when we look at uh, socialism or so-called socialism, like in the election cycle right now, is it is it just an argument over to what extent we milk the engine of the free market? And, and hand that delicious milk to other people at mm -hmm. this point. Because I'm looking at English socialism post-WW2 as a Churchill freak. It, it, it just broke my heart that they went away from Churchill and Attlee. Although, like uh, like like Trump, and this will be the first and last message, or, uh, mention of Joe Donald J. It. Trump, <laughs> a certain fatigue does creep in when you have a really, really, really strong personality on the scene. But anyway, so Britain, after their incredible bravery and sacrifice and and, and helping save the free world, blah, blah, blah. The fact that they went to socialism has always broken my heart. Um, is it more complicated than how much milk do we take from the producers and give out? I mean, because nobody's calling for 
college textbook yeah, socialism. George Will's been talking about this a lot in the past couple of years, that, that socialism has just completely transformed its definition from owning the means of production to now just a large welfare state. state welfare state, yeah. yeah. And, and The book which, starts there. Which the, I guess the, yeah. is a progress, of, a progress of a sort, I guess, that the socialists aren't actually even arguing for socialism anymore. I guess so, that's a sort of problem. So if the definition is changed when we see those polls that say 40% of young people approve of socialism or something like that, should we get nervous or, or should we think, well, it's a different yeah. word? <laughs> I think so. No, I think it's a good I think Big welfare states though. are terrible, too. But <laughs> You're right. But that's where the book starts. I mean, uh, the, the author, Moravchik, grew up in a in a socialist family. His parents were socialists. His grandparents, I think, were even socialist. Yeah. He was born and bred in the system, and he makes the point that uh, when he was in high school, he was a member of the same socialist organization that Bernie Sanders was, although he doesn't think he ever met Bernie at that time. But he's... In this edition, it might not be in Tim's edition, actually, he, he's talking about how he had his book release party, his ceremony, and his 85-year-old father shows up to protest him and hand out pamphlets, <laughs> right. hand awesome. out pamphlets about how awesome. he and his mother were living on Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. And he, he makes the comment that, I guess it is somewhat of a victory that socialists now just look to a big welfare state as their consolation prize. But he was writing at the time, he was thinking, this thing is clearly dead, and there's no way that Chavez or Bernie Sanders could revive it. So I mean, that's what he thought. It, it, by the, I, just because you mentioned Churchill, I'm reminded of the old story that Churchill once went into the to the men's room at the Parliament at the House of Commons, and you know there, there's a stall for every member of of Parliament. And he, when he went in, he saw that Attlee was standing at the first at the first urinal. So he went all the way to the end, <laughs> and and Attlee said, "Well, Sir Winston, won't you? You're not going to stand next to me." And Churchill turned to him and said, uh, "Whenever you socialists see something big that works well, you want to nationalize it." <laughs> Uh-huh. Probably not a true story, but uh, uh, it's a who dick joke. Is what <laughs> <laughs> who cares? <laughs> and speaking of George Will, he, you know, one of the, one Willism that has really stuck with me is that he he mentioned one time the only genuine proletarian revolution in the 20th century was solidarity in Poland. Mm. We, you know, you talked Jack about about socialism being a disease of the intellectual class, and when you look at what the working people actually want. The only time they ever actually rose up without the without that kind of leadership was solidarity. You might also add things like Tiananmen Square or what's going on in Hong Kong right now to that. So when the people are really genuinely given a choice, they'll choose a welfare state a lot of the time, but they don't actually choose socialism. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The founding fathers uh, recognized that tendency in human nature and our system is designed to resist the impulse toward sheepiness not only that but now the founding fathers were mostly dead by the time socialism really started to to begin but one who was still around was james madison he lived to 1836 and he actually he got to to know robert owen's efforts with owen has talked about a lot in the book yep and madison was actually approached by owen about his ideas and madison said that's ridiculous he said if you take away people's property then you're not only will they will they not labor for subsistence, but you'll end up depriving them of all their rights. So mm-hmm. we know quite well what the founding fathers would have thought of socialism. They would have rejected it, and rightly so. Yeah, Owen Owen brought socialism uh, to America and 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 created uh, the idea for at least. And he started the, the very first New Harmony was the first commune in America, and then it went on. There were two hundred and fifty to three hundred more of these little utopias inspired by him. And the book points out that by the early 1900s, all of them have failed and their median lifespan was two years. But let's just let's not get out of this section without and, sharing. And a the quote. ones that succeeded were the ones that transformed into factories. Like yes, I mentioned, a man, a colony, exactly. a colony. Robert Dale Owen's son 
one of his oldest sons who was summarizing his experience with socialism in these in these colonies and New Harmony said, now this is the guy's son, all cooperative schemes which provide equal remuneration to the skilled and industrious as and to the ignorant and idle must work to their own downfall. For by this unjust plan of remuneration, they must of necessity eliminate the valuable members who find their services reached by the indigent and retain only the improvident, unskilled, and vicious members. So obviously true. And it happens in today's welfare state also. What happens in in the welfare state? We come along, we say, well, you know, we feel bad that all these people are poor, so we're going to give them all, let's say, $1,000 a month. Okay, in a couple months, pretty soon, they're squandering their $1,000 on meth or something. And so then the legislature says, well, we can't just keep giving people $1,000 a month to use meth. So we're going to put, a, put in a rule that says you can't spend your $1,000 on meth. You can only spend it at the grocery store. Well, then they go to the grocery store and they start buying steak. And you say, well, they shouldn't really be buying steak. So they pass another rule that says, no, you have to buy healthy stuff. And, and you have to buy uh, quantities of moderately priced food instead. Right. And this process continues and continues and continues until the government is putting strings on every dollar it Mm. gives you. And that's how the government ends up controlling everything in a socialist society, because it has to control something or the people are just going to squander the money all the way anyway, even if the system does work. And so that's why you get on the get to the situation where totalitarianism flows from socialism necessarily because the government's going to have to control everything that's going to plan the economy. So the idea that you can have socialism with to- without totalitarianism is like the idea that you can have the convex without the concave. The two necessarily go together. So is the indispensable freedom then the freedom to fail? If we prevent that, then we start down the road that inevitably ends with yeah. what you're describing. Yeah, sure. No, it's the, the indispensable freedom is the right of an individual to his or her own life period. And that includes the right to fail, but it also means the right to succeed. People have the right to succeed. People don't talk enough about the right to succeed and to keep the fruits of their labor when they have succeeded. Because, as I said, the pervasive notion of self-sacrifice and that there's something wrong with being wealthy, having succeeded through your own hard work. You have to put a structure in place for that, though, because it is human nature. It's been proven by all kinds of different polls that if our neighbor gets a bigger house, we now feel worse than we did before he got a bigger house. And you want to go and take stuff from him. We were perfectly fine with our house until he got a bigger house. Now I'm miserable. That's just human nature. And the tendency of people in that situation to go and take stuff from the neighbor is why most of human history has been an unbroken chain of of Stone Age poverty. Hey, by the way, since Owen came up, I want to mention this, another sex note. There was like one line in the book that says Owen at the New Harmony might have been sexing up all the wives. They clearly don't have enough evidence on her that, or he just spent more time on it, but... There, there are some comments about What's that. What's the point history. of being a dictator if you can't? So that's like, why it's well, called I dictator. Said that. <laughs> Chairman Mao took it to the next level. Yeah. yeah, but so like, oh yeah, but so Mao like, was the Chinese Jeffrey Epstein, as he it was turns the, out. He was the Chinese <laughs> Epstein and worse. But yeah. so all like all cult leaders or dictators or whatever, you know, whether it's Osama bin Laden or whoever the hell, um, Owen might have been sexing up the wives there at New Harmony. That was his interest. That's why he came back to check on it every yeah, now and he, then. He would he would set these these places up, and then he would leave his son to run them, and he would leave, and then just come back every every sex up a couple of wives and take off. But yeah. you guys, you guys, it's gonna be different this time. Yeah, well, that's the that's the <laughs> constant theme throughout the book is that socialists to this day get to still say, well, it's never been properly executed. Yeah. They screwed it up. If you did it right, it'd be perfect. And I think that's part of the brilliance of the book, guys, that, that, that what we haven't really hit upon expressly is 
it re every chapter reads like its own short story on socialism, starting with the French Revolution, ending with the kibbutz. Well, and then he has a postscript on Bernie and and uh, and uh, Chavez. But some nice stuff on African republics as well. Yeah, well, that that's was just pretty it. Is, yeah. is he, they go through? Um, look, here are the violent overthrow guys: Marx, Engels, uh, uh, Russia, Stalin, Mussolini. Mussolini. Right, it didn't yeah. work. Then uh, here are the people that perverted it to fascism, Mussolini and Hitler. Okay, it yeah. didn't work. And then, oh, by the way, uh, India and Tanzania and England sort of tried this slower, kinder, gentler approach where you, you take the Bernie and Elizabeth Warren style. And oh, by the way, they don't work. And it's, they just they just systematically he goes through every iteration we've seen over the last 200 years and says, this is why they won't work, because the the argument that it's it's not the system, it's the leader you can't keep saying that after we've gone through 23 different leaders, everybody from as meek as Attlee to as harsh as uh, Lenin. Well, I can just imagine the one socialist who's bothered to listen this far into the podcast saying, <laughs> saying, well, yeah, but isn't that true what you libertarians say? You say there's never been a real capitalism either. So what's the difference between those two? To which my answer would be, no, that's true. But we've approached capitalism in many ways. And what we expect to see which is rising standards of living, even for the poorest, have been the result. So it's, mm. it is not really, it, it is true that we've never had a truly capitalist society, but the closer you get to it, you know, the warmer and the more humane and the better that situation really is. And that's even true for these socialist countries, these, the, the China of the, the Chinas of the oh, world, right, for example. Yes. The more they become capitalist, the wealthier yeah. they get and the better off they are than they were under Chairman Mao. Now, you know, on that point, there's another book that actually I think is better than this one, although it focuses only on Russia. And that is, uh, there's a book by Martin Malia called um, The Soviet Tragedy, which talks about, in the context of the Soviet Union, this, this, this argument that it wasn't really communism. Where And, you know, there is not a single criterion of communism that the Soviet Union did not uh, endorse and, and embrace. They and wrote practice. the book. Absolutely. <laughs> they created it. And and this this idea that um, uh, of, of thawing and freezing your economy, because that's what Soviet history largely did was it would it would have these tier, short periods of apparent thawing and slightly more economic activity and slightly more capitalism. And in order to generate enough wealth for it to come along and freeze again, and that's and that, of course, is exactly what's happened in China and is continuing to happen in China. Right. One of the, I'm into this author Kotkin, who's written a lot of books about Russia and Stalin and everything, yeah. and he he accessed all the all the papers that are in the old Soviet Union archives and everything, and he said the one of the biggest revelations to him reading through their private correspondence was they were actually communists. It's amazing. Yeah. Stalin and right. his friends, they're actually communists. They <laughs> believe this crap. I could believe it for Stalin, but Lenin I find yeah. hard to believe because he was so cynical. They actually believe this crap in their per, in their personal diaries and their correspondence to each other that they didn't expect anybody else to read. They they talked the language of the proletariat and the heaven on earth and all this crap. Were, were yeah. they wondering why it wasn't working as planned? I don't know. That's, that's the part that... I don't know. On that front, because you mentioned that on the air and then, and then Joe said something I thought was fantastic, and this was weeks ago. But um, that's that's about my rate. Once yeah. every few weeks. And, I'll when say you, and when you say fantastic things, he remembers it for weeks. Yeah, because well, they're <laughs> well, rare. You they can stand out. You can always Please. remember six things. Off does an elephant wander <laughs> down your street? You wouldn't forget it. So Jack said that talking about Casca, and then Joe said every movement has three categories: true ideologues, cynical manipulators, and useful idiots. And I, I, so I wanted to ask each of you. I know where I'd be. Uh, well, yeah, not where you are, but how? Look, if, if you look at socialism today, <laughs> yes. and you look at 
the popularity it has that half of our college kids want to see it implemented, God forbid. What what percentage in your candidate casino, casino, if you will, what percentage? So I'll start. I said, I think true ideologues are about 2%, cynical manipulators, 18%, and useful idiots are 80%. Yeah, useful idiots are a big chunk of it, no doubt. In, in terms of the electorate as a whole? or Yeah, or the, the people that are for or... it. The, this movement that's for it, this, this ideology. What do you think the breakdown is? I mean, how many of them do you think are really, truly believe in it? Oh, oh, and and have the knowledge enough to to actually know what they believe in. Well, um, true ideologues. Yeah, no, that's a right. that's a good question though, Joe, because that's like asking how many uh, members of the church are true Christians. You know, uh, right? It would, right. It, it is you, like that. You have to have a certain <laughs> amount of knowledge to even qualify, and then what? How do you determine whether someone who doesn't know a lot about religion but really believes it versus a person who knows a lot and does and also really believes it? How yeah. do you compare those? I don't know how you'd compare that quanti- quantitatively, right. right? Right. But I will say, I think the 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 true useful idiots with American socialism t- today is the right is is self-professed conservatives who uh, fail to address the, the moral problem with socialism and who resort to sound bites instead of actually confronting the moral challenge of socialism and, and saying, oh, socialism doesn't work. You know, saying it doesn't work, yeah, it's true, it doesn't work. But that's not going to convince somebody who believes that socialism is moral. They're going to find a way to make it work if they think it's the right thing to do, which it's not. Uh, incidentally, you mentioned China and Africa I, I I'm reminded of a professor I heard once speak who said, you know, if the if Western colonial powers have anything to apologize to the third world for, it's for socialism. Socialism isn't a native idea to those continents. It was imported to those continents by Western col- colonialists. And although it's now practiced by native populations, they do so because they've been taught it by the West. If the West has anything to apologize to the rest of the world for, it's socialism. Which has condemned so many people in those countries to poverty. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wonder, getting back to something you just said earlier, I wonder if what we really need to do with our culture and our politics is to give people more confidence that they can succeed in capitalism. Yes. That's a lie. That is a, that's a white power lie. <laughs> Intersectional, <laughs> right. patriarchal. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I hear all the time. That, it, that land of envy, opportunity is a terrible, terrible envy, lie. Envy, blame, and lack of confidence. You know, yeah. so much, Jack, that's so right. I've been, my wife and I have been watching a lot of 60s television and movies. We've been watching Star Trek and Twilight Zone and stuff like that. And it occurred to me the other day, Hollywood just does not make movies well, every now and then they do, but very rarely does it make the kind of movies that were very common in the 50s and 60s about business successes mm-hmm. and about working hard to accomplish something in a bourgeois sense. Um, there's There are some movies today. There was a movie called Joy just a few years ago that was really good on this point. There and, and but oh, yeah, about the vacuum cleaner uh, the, lady, right? Uh, the or, hangers. She yeah. invented hangers. Oh, right, Marvelous right. movie. Had this yeah. wonderful passage in there where they were talking about opportunity and success and beautiful movie but they're so rare they're all, they're even rarer than joe's wise yeah. comments yeah that, <laughs> and and it's a real shame because they used to make movies like the executive suite which was what 1955 or something like that. what a marvelous movie the entire movie is about a guy who runs a furniture company and he refuses to compromise and make cheap lousy furniture that's what the plot mm. of the movie what a beautiful movie that is 
<laughs> of course, it makes a wonderful double feature with the Fountainhead. <laughs> yeah. But but it's a shame that 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 because Hollywood is so rigidly anti-individual, yeah. so rigidly anti-economic success, that you very rarely find these kinds of movies. There, Chef was another really good one that came out a few years ago with the, the John Favreau in it. But well, but there are very few and far between these these stories about economic success. We, Which we was the more. one with the mouse chef? Oh yeah, what Ratatouille? Ratatouille what a marvelous yeah, movie that! Yeah, you know it's funny, and it's probably just because I'm a guy who uh, follows politics day by day, and it will cost me my soul. Um, and I'm looking for an alternate, you know, source of income. Oh, I thought you meant an alternate soul. Well, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> book, book review—that'll be your ultimate source uh, of as income. As soon as, <laughs> as soon as they perfect the old soul transplant, I'm waiting in line. No, but you're talking about how conservatives have done such a crappy job of talking about the moral problems with um, with socialism and defending the free market and the rest of it, and I agree completely, but I think our, our culture, and culture is malleable, and it goes back and forth, our culture is, uh, has evolved to a point where that is such a hard sell, it man. Is. That's right. Everybody's looking for Santa Claus all the time. We just want to be given stuff. I Now, here here's uh, my compared optimism, to, say, Jack. the World War II generation, which was all about duty, sacrifice, etc. Sure, and and going through a, a catastrophe like World War II changed the, the, the moral perspective of a lot of people beyond our capacity to appreciate. But, Jack, this, this gets to my optimism. I still believe, and maybe it's a foolish thought on my part, but I still believe in in the idea from of like like in high noon, you know, Gary Cooper is all by himself and confronting the bad guys. I don't think that's true. I think in in America today that if you stand up for what's right, people will rally to you. I've seen it happen, and I think it will still happen. And so I'm optimistic that eventually somebody will be found. And in American history, there has always been somebody found. There was there have been people who have stood up and and said no to to the wrong when the when the moment came and they've been rallied behind. Now it's not there's no it's not a utopia. It's not going to be overnight success. It'll be very challenging. It could be dangerous even. But I do think that if conservatives have the guts to stand up for the principles of the American Constitution, people would 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 rally to them. Because hmm. because he said utopia, I just wanted to throw in something I learned in the book that I hadn't I didn't even know. Silly enough that that. Yeah. The utopianism, the idea of utopia, was a Robert Owen idea, and that was that you didn't need a violent overthrow. You could just take well, utopia and put... is me sexing up all your wives. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you could you could simply uh, you set aside some land, some assets, and some money, and you could all live in a communal fashion. And it was Marx and Engels that came along and said, and they ridiculed that. They actually ridiculed the concept of utopia. And that's that's another one of these splits between yeah. the, the, the 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 sort of the soft road and the hard road to right. socialism. I just don't understand the kind of mentality that thinks that collectivism would be utopia. When I think of utopia, I think of living in my little house with with my wife and, on a hill in the middle of nowhere. And leave me alone. And, and leave me alone. <laughs> right. Everything's delivered by drone. Yeah. yeah, that's the way you're made, man. That gets back to my my point about the founding fathers. They understood there are way more sheep than than sheep dogs or wolves yeah. or whatever metaphor you want to use. Well, there would be no place for me yet, come the revolution. I'll be up against the wall and shot, and then then they won't have to worry about misanthropes like myself. Please. You know, just real quickly, it's funny you mentioned, uh, well, uh, Marxism, Leninism, the rest of it. A couple of my favorite characters in the book were the 20th century American labor leaders. Yes, like, uh, I was going to oh, say, yeah. we got to talk Meany, yeah. who, who were adherents to all of this. 
and then looked around and, and saw it was a bunch of snooty intellectuals looking down on their peeps who are mm-hmm. hardworking people. They're, this is a load of crap. You this know, is bullshit. You know, we, we mentioned Ayn Rand earlier. It, it, Ayn Rand loved labor unions. I know it's really surprising to a lot of people, but she credited labor unions with staving off socialism in this country. It, she was precisely right. Precisely yeah. for that reason. She was right. Now, there are some who are pretty bad guys. Who was the guy who's in charge of the United Mine Workers went on strike during World War II because he was an outright communist. But mm. there were a lot of of union leaders who were not single-handedly responsible, but very largely responsible for the for the defeat of communism. And the number one labor union leader responsible for the defeat of communism, anybody? Meaning your Ronald Gompers. Reagan, who is oh. the only oh. union president ever to serve as president of the United States. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I was going to say, Joe, we could not ever leave a discussion about this book without talking about labor unions, because that also surprised me, was that the author himself at the end of the book concludes, he said, ultimately, the number one downfall of socialism was the inability to defeat the biggest capitalist society, the United States. And the really the, the reason they couldn't do it, they couldn't get our workers because Gompers and Meany were so against socialism as the bourgeoisie highfalutin idealism that wanted to see workers go through something as bad as a revolt before they got anything good. Right. And it was right. this incrementalism that, that labor unions made life better, which yeah. is an Ayn Randian philosophy and as well. A, and there's the old story about the, the Soviets showing a propaganda films about American poverty to Soviet workers to show how to, to try and teach them, well, it's not any better in the United States. Wow, I, so, didn't, I didn't so know that. Would look at the films and say, wow, they have cars. <laughs> Wouldn't it be awesome yeah. to see one of those today? I would love to see one of oh, those. Oh, they're out there. Really? They're out there, yeah. Oh, you, man. The, the thing I loved about the labor leaders was that they had a very clear-eyed recognition that uh, all that we want to achieve, the engine of it, is the free market. It's capitalism. We want to reform the way it's done. We want a better share for the working people, et cetera, et cetera. But... They were absolutely unconfused about the natural state of man. Now, as I read that, I I did get a little sad because I wondered, and I'm curious what you guys think, do our labor union leaders today, do they feel the same way, do you think? Or are they more infected with the socialist bug? Well, the rhetoric changes based on the culture like we were talking about a couple of minutes ago. I don't know how to answer that. I don't. Know. I don't know labor union leaders, so I can't really answer that. But I, I, I do think that um, if you look around for the world's most exploitative corporations today, they're labor unions. Those, those are the exploitative corporations that exploit the workers because they use the they use the state to extract wealth from the workers against their will in order to achieve political goals that they think are better for the workers. So yeah. That, but, I, but as far as whether union leaders today are more or less socialist, I really I don't know how to answer that. Question. I would just I have to be kind of careful because I negotiate with many of these entities. But uh, I would just say that um, sort of that clear eyed um, defense of capitalism from Gompers and Meany, uh, I don't I don't see that as much in today's labor. Union well, we don't world. have a Cold War going on, you know, That's and that true. that made that a lot helped. of difference. That helped. Yeah. yeah. Having, being rivals with the Russians, I think, meant a lot to to union leaders in the 50s and 60s, I suspect. And you know it's funny because I you know we're talking now in a in a time when a lot of college students certainly uh, have no memory of the Cold War and it's really amazing. I grew up in the Cold War. I, now I I was 13 when the Berlin Wall fell, so I don't. It's not like it was a always throughout my life, but but I grew up in in a Cold War family. My father was a, an engineer for Lockheed Skunk Works on spy planes, and so was his father. So the Cold War was a very large part of my life, and to look back at 
at this at this era and see people who have no awareness of Soviet aggressive Soviet communism. They ha- they don't know anything about Prague Spring or the Hungarian revol- revolt or any of this. They don't know any of this history. They don't they don't remember what it was like in 1989 to watch the tanks run over those Chinese kids or to watch the Berlin Wall fall. It, the, the greatest moment of of liberty it's just astonishing to me that these kids don't know it today and and if you're looking for for stuff on this the material is out there it's a little hard to find i would start right off by recommending the marvelous movie the singing revolution which is about the the baltic states standing up against the soviet union if that movie doesn't make you cry nothing will what a beautiful film about the willingness of these these people literally while the soviet tanks are barreling down on them to stand up and declare independence from the Soviet Union. Ah, oh, just amazing to see. And that history is in danger of being lost today. Amazing. Well, so you grow up in a world where there are two choices for the way to structure society and you got the, you know, the the Soviet Union out there. Now, I think in our own minds we're going to compare ourselves not to the Soviet Union but to all the stuff we see on social media, and they seem to have yeah. more stuff than I've yeah, got. Maybe so. So I need more stuff, and I'm getting ripped off because I don't have as much stuff as everybody else. Okay, so now, yeah. now, seeing as how we've gone on for almost an hour and a half, I, I it's time, and I, I got to run because I got, I've got a thing I got to get to. Um, I will introduce the book that I was, I was going to recommend that we, we consider for the next book round, and that is book review. And yeah, book review. A book review. Uh, and that is uh, in, the wine? Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. Are you familiar with this book? Oh, boy. Uh, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, am. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I texted you about it a while back. Yeah. And I, okay. So Enlightenment Now, is it's a bit long. And we can, if you want, we could skip the last 150 pages or so. But what's it, he, Pinker is a Harvard professor who wrote a book a while back called The Better Angels of Our Nature, in which he tried to prove that the world is becoming more peaceful and less warlike. And so many people argued with him about it that he put this book together, Enlightenment Now, as a defense of the Enlightenment, the, a defense of the principles of the 18th century Enlightenment. It's somewhat similar to Jonah Goldberg's book, uh, the, the Death yeah. of the West, but he's yeah. talking about how the Enlightenment is. That's right. Yeah. But he starts out with like 200 pages of statistics. And he puts them wow. very well. It's not boring at all. That are mind-blowing. Mind-boggling how much better life is today than it was 200 years ago. And he puts it in ways that you would never think of. Stuff. My, one of my favorite examples is he compares the, the danger to pedestrians caused by cars <laughs> to the danger to pedestrians caused by horse-drawn buggies. We don't right. often think about how dangerous to how pedestrians yeah. it was to have horses running around all the time. But, you know, Governor Morris, who wrote the Constitution, had his leg taken off by a horse-drawn buggy. I mean, it, it happen all the time and so he goes through all of these marvelous details and boy jack if you finish that book and you're not optimistic about yeah. about human humanity and the state we're in nothing i like nothing. the idea of a more positive conversation oh, so than great. are we about to become socialists I, I <laughs> any, any, any objections is we're that doomed. our next book we're doomed that, that's fine that's with a good me. All right, you can get it on audio too so if three you, months from now at some point roughly three months from now two three months from now we'll do that one very brief final thought then on the book tim your your thing about the baltic states was beautiful you want to rest on that one or you know i remember watching it because i became interested in in lithuania in 1988 and i watched them stand up to soviet tyranny and it was the most on awesome and spirit ennobling and terrifying thing to watch on cnn at the time and to think about those people who had the bravery to stand up to a tyranny that you and i i hope will never be able to imagine 
And so if people out there are unfamiliar with it, you, you, you kids today, you don't know what it was like. <laughs> For goodness sake, learn about this stuff. There's a, a marvelous documentary series called Cold War that CNN did a few years ago. You can get it on DVD that covers these things. If, if you don't know the history of the tyranny and the war and the misery and the horror of the Cold War, of Cold War communism, learn it, man, and, and count your blessings every day. Craig Gottwald's final thought on uh, heaven on earth, the rise, fall, afterlife of socialism. Yeah, let's, uh, let's hit uh, British socialism because we touched upon it briefly. I, I just want to... Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, the uh, Christian capitalism or just plain Christianity, Christian socialism, Tony Blair, this was... This was the socialist side of, of, of the UK in around 2000. Reducing taxes while acknowledging that the era of tax and spend is dead. Reducing the welfare rolls. Labor Party is now the party of work and order. Governments don't raise children, families do. That was socialism in the UK at the turn of the century. That's <laughs> right of our current Democratic Party. Wow, that's interesting, Jack. That's amazing. Final uh, note, thought? They, they added one word to our thoughts in the Declaration of Independence when they are creating their constitution for the French Revolution. They more or less agreed with life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, but they also threw in the word equality, and that's what set off the whole socialist, modern socialist movement. And if you throw in the word equality, I mean, you want equality at the end? Well, you're going to have socialism. Right. There's no way to avoid it. My final thought, looking at all the characters in the book, um, some curiosities of history, some uh, people who are responsible for tens of millions of deaths, was you had two groups. You had the fools um, who just didn't understand human nature, and then you had the monsters, and they're the ones that really matter. And, you know, as a combative kid from working-class Chicago, uh, my question is, who the hell are you? Who the hell are you to determine, never mind me, but mankind and the way it has to go? Who the hell are you? And that's the, what I came away from. The final, that's beautiful. No, that is the right answer. That is beautiful. Final, final note. Lennon marks were pieces of shit. <laughs> hey, hey, Go around the, around the horn. Who was your least favorite character in the book? Mine's Lennon. Oh, Marx. What a loser. Lennon's uh, the worst person. He killed people, but Marx, what a just a sad, uh, pathetic piece of shit. Lennon wasn't much better. Yeah, <laughs> Lennon was a yeah. He was an I'm, extra big piece of shit. I'm going to stick with Stalin only because I don't yeah. know. I don't know enough about Mao, but can't but, argue with that. I know he was worse. Beatles, but. Stones. Let's not fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the book review, gentlemen. We'll do it again in a few months. Extra large. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. 
Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give Love and Logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and Logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com.